to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 34, as we follow along with today's lesson. Jesus, it says, was moved with compassion when he saw the multitude. Now, it's easy to to watch the direction a ship is going. There at Capernaum, you can see all the way to the other side, over to the area of Bethsaida, where they had gone. You you could watch the ship the whole way. You could see it landing on the other side. So as soon as the people got the direction the little ship was going, they started running around the upper part of the lake, and it isn't really that far. And as they were going through the various cities, the villages, the cities of the Decapolis, people were joining them. It became like the Boston Marathon. (laughs) And and people joined with them. What's happening? Where are you going? Oh, Jesus is going to be over. Oh, really? And they were all taken off. So here as they pull in to shore in this sort of a deserted area just beyond Bethsaida, crowd of people waiting, thousands of them, probably as many as 15,000 people waiting for the little ship to land there. And when Jesus came out and saw the many people, he was moved with compassion toward them because they were like a sheep that had no shepherd hungry, wandering, no one to guide them, no one to lead them. And so he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, now it was probably in April that this took place. The sun sets there at the Sea of Galilee about six o'clock in the evening. So as it was getting towards sunset, His disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted area. Now the time is far past. It's getting late, Lord. Send them away. Get rid of them. You know, you've been here all day. Get rid of them. That they might go into the countryside round about and into the villages and buy themselves some bread, for they've had nothing to eat. And he answered and said unto them, Well, give them something to eat. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? Lord, what are, you, what are you saying? And he said unto them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. So they went out and they came back and they said, Well, there are five loaves and two fish. 
And so he commanded the people, or he commanded them to make the people sit down in companies on the green grass. That is in rows and in, in sections. And they sat down in these rows by the hundreds and by the fifties, group of a hundred, group of fifty, sitting together in these clusters. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he blessed and broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to set before the people and the two fish he divided among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. The word filled in Greek is glutted. You know what that is. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, you know, where you eat until you can hardly move. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fishes. They ended up with more than they started with. And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men, plus, of course, the women and the children. And immediately he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent the people away. Now, there were two Bethsaidas, was one that was over there on the sort of northeastern side and the other on the western side of the sea. So he commanded them to get in the ship and go on over, and I'll dismiss the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Now, it is interesting that this has been a heavy day, a day of ministry, a day of pressure, Crowds of people not giving them the rest that they had come to seek. And Jesus giving of himself, ministering to the people until the evening hours. And then this marvelous miracle of taking the five loaves and the two fish and with them feeding the multitudes. And now he sends the disciples, he said, go on across the sea. And he dismisses the people. And then what does he do to refresh himself and to gather strength? He goes up into the mountain to spend time with the Father. Oh, the strength that comes through fellowship with God. The strength that comes through waiting upon God. I used to always be troubled when I would wake up at night through some disturbance and couldn't go back to sleep. And I think, oh, I need my sleep so desperately. Oh, this is terrible, you know, to be awake, I need my sleep. <laughs> but I have learned that if I wake up at night just to spend the time in prayer and I am as strengthened or even more so than if I had slept. Now, I had a pressured weekend. We went to Salt Lake City on Friday. Uh, we had a very interesting experience uh, with uh, 
some of the Mormon leadership there at the uh, headquarters of the Mormon church. We had the large conference in which I was to speak twice on Saturday. In order to conserve funds, I volunteered to share my room with another man who snored (laughs) very loudly. Not only did he snore, but he would sort of grunt and all with it. And so I spent a good part of Friday or Friday night in prayer <laughs> because about the time I would fall off to sleep, then I would be awakened, you know, with this noise, and I'd realize, oh, my. <laughs> and I prayed for his wife and... <laughs> But you know, Saturday morning, I was as refreshed and strengthened as if I had slept soundly all night long because of just spending the time in communion. There's such tremendous strength in time spent with the Lord in prayer. Tremendous strength. If you have problem with insomnia, Be thankful and use the time to pray. Because you don't have to sleep. You can be just as refreshed and strengthened in prayer as you can in sleeping. And Jesus oftentimes, after the hard days, after the great pressure, rather than saying, boy, I need a good night's sleep, he would go out and spend the night in prayer found more strength in that than he did in sleeping. And so here we find him, a strenuous day, a lot of pressures. He has just received word uh, uh, that Herod now knows about him. And he sends the disciples away. And he goes into the mountain to pray. And when the evening was come, The ship was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them. It was probably a full moon. And actually, again, in a full moon, clear night there in the Galilee, you can can see across the Galilee. You can see the objects out on the sea because of the reflection of the moon on the water. And and you can see there at night on a full moon. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. Now, it's interesting to me. They were toiling. They were going through hardship. They were trying to row against the seas because... They were obeying the command of Jesus. Now, the easy thing to do and the wisest thing to do in a situation like that is rather than just labor out there trying to row against the seas is to just turn around and go with the seas. 
come on back, land, and, you know, get over there the next day. But it was because they were seeking to obey the command of Christ, they were finding themselves in trouble, having hardship, trying to go against the seas. It is interesting that the Lord doesn't always direct us into the easy, soft places. But in following the command of the Lord, we oftentimes find ourselves going against the current. We find ourselves in hard places as we seek to obey the Lord. Now about the fourth watch of the night, and this is the last watch of the night. The night was divided into four watches. And uh, the first watch was till nine o'clock, from nine to midnight, the second watch, midnight to three, the third watch, and from three to six in the morning was the fourth watch. So sometime around three o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking upon the sea. And he acted like he was just going to walk right past them. I mean, they were trying to go through the water. They were having a hard time because of the wind blowing against them. But he was able to walk on it. It was just like he was going to walk right past them. I'm going to the other side, you know. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, a spirit. They cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and he said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, don't be afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind stopped, and they were amazed, because beyond measure, and I can believe that, and they wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Interesting. They, they didn't seem to comprehend what had happened with the loaves and the fish. It didn't seem to sink in what Jesus had done. How he demonstrated his power over the elements in multiplying the loaves and the fish. He demonstrated his power over the elements. Now, here again, that same night or early in the next morning, he again demonstrates his power over the elements. So that as he gets into the ship, immediately it's calm. Again, demonstrating power over the elements. And they were marveled. They, wow, woo, you know, but they, they didn't stop to realize Hey, he just fed 5,000 people plus the women and children with, with five loaves and two fish. Uh, they were sort of blinded to that. I wonder how many times we're blinded to the miraculous work of the Lord around us. God is doing such wonderful things, and, and so often we don't even seem to observe it. We don't realize it. The miracles that God performs almost daily around our lives. But many times our hearts are hardened. It doesn't penetrate. It doesn't seem to affect us or stick. 
And when they had passed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and they drew to the shore, probably in the area of uh, Magdala between uh, Capernaum and Magdala, there on the uh, north uh, western shore of the Galilee. And when they were come out of the ship, immediately the people there knew him, that is Jesus. And they ran through the whole region round about. And they began to carry in beds those that were sick when they heard who he was. And wherever he entered into villages or cities or the countryside, they laid the sick people in the streets and they begged him that he might touch, that they might touch if it were but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. Now again, it takes us back to the chapter where the woman made her way through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment in chapter 5 and back to chapter 3 where we are told that people were touching him uh, in order to be healed and uh, th that he, wherever he was going, people were grabbing hold of him and as many as touched him were healed. So you can imagine how this could be uh, trying on a person to be constantly being touched. I mean, we all seem to like our space. You know, we, we, we don't like to get into crowds where we are being sort of pushed and shoved, and we like our space. Well, I like my space. I can't speak for all of them. I mean, you, you may like that, but I, I sort of like my space. I don't like it when I'm standing in the line in the grocery store and the person behind me is so close that they're pushing me, you know. They're up against me, and, you know, and I don't like that. I, like, I want to say, give me my space, you know. Don't, don't stand so close to me. I like my space. And so you can imagine how it must have been that everywhere Jesus was going, there was just that press towards him. He would look up and he would see the crowds of people and all of them were trying to get close, pushing, shoving, getting near, reaching out and grabbing him, touching him. How did he respond? How did he react? Was he sort of, give me my space, stand back? No. He looked with compassion. He saw their needs. And he was always willing to be touched by a needy person. And so tonight, if you have needs, he's available. He doesn't mind you touching him. In fact, he sort of likes it. He wants you to reach out and touch him, that you might be healed, that you might be helped. Whatever might be a problem, 
They, they knew that all we have to do is just touch Jesus and the problem will be gone. And how true that is. All you have to do is just touch him. Just touch him. The touch of faith is something he always responded to. And if you reach out to touch him by faith, he'll respond to you tonight. Chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark. We read how there came together unto Jesus the Pharisees and certain of the scribes who had come up from Jerusalem. Now you know that they only came up to cause trouble, to look for trouble. Uh, it wasn't really a very friendly social call, but uh, they were always just trying to find some fault. And when they saw some of his disciples eating bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Now, washing your hands before you eat was even more important in those days, I suppose, than it is now, because you ate with your hands. They didn't have utensils, knives and forks and spoons, but they just ate with their hands. And as a general rule, you had the round, flat bread, and you'd just pull off part of the bread and you'd dip it in the sauces. And you'd, if you had a roast, you'd just pull off the meat and eat it. And of course, your hands would get greasy. And so quite often you would wash them several times during a meal. Uh, but most generally, at the end of the meal, You'd take your final piece of bread, and with it, you'd wipe the grease off of your fingers and all, and uh, onto the bread, and then you'd toss the bread to the little puppies under the table. And they always waited for that final piece of bread with, uh, that you'd use to wipe your hands. Sort of, well, that was their napkin. They didn't have napkins in those days, and so that final piece of bread served as a napkin for them. Now, the issue isn't just washing your hands. The issue is washing your hands in the ritualistic way. And uh, according to the ritual of washing your hands, uh, you had to have a measured amount of water. You could not wash your hands in a basin, but you had to wash them in running water. And thus, you needed help. You needed someone to pour the water over your hands as you washed them. And the measured amount would be poured over your hands, but you'd have to hold your hands out and pretty straight up as you rubbed them up and down as they poured the water over them, careful that the water didn't run up your arm. You wanted it to drip straight down. And then, having washed them up and down, then you would wash them with them pointing down, and again, the water just 
dripping off uh, onto uh, the floor or the ground, uh, but they had to be in running water, and there was a there was a whole ritual attached to it. Uh, now remember that these disciples were fishermen, four of them at least, and. Uh, you know, washing their hands probably wasn't the most important thing uh, to them. The issue really is that the Pharisees and the scribes looked at the washing of hands as a act of righteousness. It wasn't just uh, for hygienic purposes, uh, but it was for righteousness, and thus they considered it sinful to eat without first washing your hands in this ritualistic way, and because they did wash their hands in the ritualistic way, they felt that that constituted a righteous superiority over others. And so the whole issue is not just the washing of hands, it's how you wash your hands, whether or not you're washing them in this ritualistic or traditional way by which they had developed this tradition of washing their hands. So Mark explains, for the Pharisees and all of the Jews, except they wash their hands often, they will not eat, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they would come from the market, except they wash, they would not eat. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brass vessels and of tables. So uh, all of these ritual ways of washing these things. Now, it's interesting that uh, even today they have special silverware for their meals when they have meat. And they, they do not use the same silverware for, for meals where they have, uh, veg, uh, for their, uh, regular vegetarian type meals. Uh, they, they're very careful that they, uh, or where they have dairy products. Uh, they have one set of silverwares, one set of plates, and, and so forth for dairy products, and then another set for uh, meals where you have meat. And, and they won't even use the same silverware, uh, a, a spoon. If you would stir it uh, and you put cream in your coffee, then that spoon would be defiled. You couldn't uh, have it at a table setting where you were going to eat meat because maybe you didn't wash every little bit of cream off of the spoon. And heaven forbid that you should uh, have any kind of dairy products mixed with any meat products in your stomach. 
and so uh, separate uh, dinnerware and all for the dairy meals and the meat meals. Uh, and even to the present day, they're very, very strict and conscientious on this issue. And, and to them, it is a matter of righteousness. In other words, this constitutes my being righteous. This makes me righteous. This gives me a righteous standing before God, they feel. And, and, and thus, it, it's done religiously. Now, there's probably something to be said concerning all of the washing as far as the hygiene is concerned. Um, but, you know, if you would spill a, a pan of cookies on the floor and pick them up and eat them, it probably isn't hygienic, but it's not a sin. <laughs> and, and that's the problem. They looked at it as sinful. And, and they look at the ritual of the washing as, as a righteous thing to do. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, verse 5, asked him, Why do not your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat the bread with unwashed hands? And Jesus answered and said unto them, well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus refers them to the prophecy of Isaiah, where he spoke about how that the people would honor God with their lips, but their heart was far from God. And then Jesus adds, Howbeit in vain do they worship me as they teach for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, that is not out of Isaiah, uh, but uh, out of, uh, there is a, a, a prophecy in Jeremiah that is somewhat similar to that. In Colossians chapter 2, in regards to um, the traditions and and all that have been developed uh, by the Jews through the years. Paul writes, uh, and he said in verse 8 of chapter 2, Beware lest any man spoils you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in him, which is the head of all principalities and powers, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision that is not made with hands in the putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh as he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. And this is the thing that was, the, remember in the uh, attempting to determine what uh, relationship the Gentile believers should have to the law when the church council met. And Peter said, why should we put on them a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? Uh, they had made the law an odious thing. Uh, they, they made it to where you resented it because of all of these little traditional things that they added to the law of Moses. And so Jesus, he said, blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us, which were contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled the principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in your meat or in your drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. These things were all just a shadow of the things to come. The real substance is Jesus. And therefore let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and the worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshy mind, and not holding the head, that is Christ, from which all of the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you are dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to these ordinances of touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and the neglecting of the body, but not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. These things only uh, make you self-righteous uh, and, and that it has nothing to do with true righteousness. The true righteousness is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't depend upon uh, traditional ways of washing or, or uh, the ordinances or whatever. It's your faith in Jesus Christ that is accounted for righteousness as far as God is concerned. And, and so here they are. They're finding fault with the disciples because they're not following the traditions. And they challenge Jesus, why don't your disciples you know, follow the traditions in the washing of the hands? And Jesus said, oh, Isaiah nailed you hypocrites. Because you, you have an outward, you draw near with your mouth. And there is an outward righteousness, but within your heart is far from God. And you worship the Lord in vain because you teach for doctrine the commandments of men. This is something that is so easy for a person to get caught up in. Cultural things. 
And it seems like every area has its own culture. And it is interesting how that cultural traditions are more binding to a person than the scriptures. It's harder to break tradition than almost anything else. Tradition just is a part of us, it seems. And, and with the Jews, uh, the traditions are just, they consider it being a Jew is keeping the traditions. If, if you don't keep the traditions, you're really not a Jew. That's what makes a Jew, keeping these traditions. And so he said, laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men in the washing of the pots and the cups and many other such like things you do. In other words, God's law speaks one thing, but you guys go far beyond it in, in the washing of your cups and all. You're teaching this as doctrine. This is, you know, this is holy. This is righteous to do this this way. And uh, then he said unto them, full well you reject the commandment of God that you might keep your own tradition. And this is true today, even in the church. There are churches, some of them, that are steeped in, in traditions. And they will keep their traditions over the commandment of God. Now, God's commandment was you're not to make any graven image or likeness of things that are in heaven to bow down to worship them. And yet in so many churches we see statues of Jesus or the saints. You see people going up and kissing the toe of the statue. I mean, what about God's commandment? Well, the traditions. And they take precedent over the commandments of God. Now, he gives an example to them. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoso curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. Now, the thought of honoring your father and mother was to actually take care of them in their old age. It used to be that that was considered an obligation. They didn't have a welfare state. And so when the father and mother got too old to work anymore, the children were to take care of them. They were to provide for them. After all, uh, your father and mother provided for you for the first several years of your life. So the idea was you were to take care of them. And that was a whole, that was a part of the honoring of your father and mother. You remember when uh, Naomi had come back and uh, with Ruth, and when Ruth then married Boaz and had a son, all of Naomi's friends came and were rejoicing, and, and they said, now you'll have someone to nourish you in your old age. 
There will be someone to take care of you. And, and that was just a part of the responsibility of the children is, is providing and taking care of their aged parents. But you say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, oh, it is Corban. That is, oh, I've dedicated that to God. I've dedicated my bank account to God. Uh, that by which you may have been profited by me, that which I should have given to you. Oh, no, I dedicated that to God. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I can't give you that. I dedicated that to God. It said, and you will suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother. So, oh, well, you don't have to give it then to your father or mother. You dedicated it to God. I've, I've heard people say, well, everything I have belongs to God, but he never sees it. But, you know, they, they get around, you know, well, I don't have to give because it all belongs to God. Everything I have belongs to the Lord. So I give him nothing. Because it all belongs to him, you see. And, and that's basically, what they, well, I've dedicated this to God. So he, he said, then you say, well, that's all right, then you don't have to take care of your parents. It's been dedicated to God. And so you make the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered. And he just said, you do a lot of things like this. And so then he called all the people unto him. And he said, hearken to me, every one of you. Listen to this. And I want you to understand this. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. In other words, a little dirt won't hurt. It doesn't defile you. It doesn't make you unrighteous to pick up that piece of candy off the floor and eat it. It doesn't make you unrighteous. Nothing from without a man, nothing that you eat like that is, is making you unrighteous. It may not be good for you. Of course, you eat a lot of things that aren't good for you. And, and I don't believe that you should ask God to bless it. <laughs> Just eat it and suffer the consequences. <laughs> I mean, pizza at midnight is just not good for you. Pepperonis and all. Just, if you want it, go ahead, eat it. But then, you know, just say thank you. You can thank him for it, but don't ask him to bless it. <laughs> but it'll pass. And that's basically what Jesus said. It'll pass through you, and, and, and so it doesn't defile you. But this is what defiles a man. It's what comes out of his mouth. That's what's really defiling. And so he said, but the things which come out of him, these are they which defile the man. And if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. I mean, this is a truth Get this, Jesus is saying, listen to me now. You know, they've just had this conversation. Now listen to me. It's not really what goes into your mouth. that It's what comes out of your mouth. And so when he had entered into the house with his disciples, away from the crowds, they said, Lord, what did you mean by that? And he said unto them, are you also without understanding? 
Do you not perceive that whatever thing from without enters into a man, it can't really defile him. It doesn't make you unrighteous because it enters not into his heart, but into the belly. And it goes out, purging all meats. And he said, that which comes out of the man is that which defiles from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds the evil thoughts, the adulteries, the fornications, the murders, the thefts, the covetousness, the wickedness, the deceit and lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and these are the things that are defiling. The things that are in your heart, those are the things that are defiling. Now, he arose from there, and he went over to the coast, to the Phoenician city of Tyre, and the area of Sidon, which is not very far from Tyre. And he entered into a house, and he sought to just do it secretly. No man would know it, but he could not be hid. I mean, it, 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 even though he wasn't on television and, and all, you know, they, they had communications, and when Jesus would go anywhere, the word would buzz around. And a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek or a Seraphonician. Uh, she was not a, of the covenant people. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. There at his feet, begging that he would cast the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, let the children first be filled it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. Now, there are many people that have difficulty with the way Jesus was responding to this woman because it seems so completely out of character with Jesus and that which we know of Jesus. Over and over again, we've read how that Jesus had compassion on people. He was moved with compassion. And here is a lady kneeling at his feet, begging that he would heal her daughter. And, and he insults her, calls her a dog. Now, that's, it's interesting, there are no curse words in Hebrew. If they want to curse, they have to use English or some other language. <laughs> That's sort of neat. No curse words in Hebrew. But about the meanest thing you can say is he's a Gentile dog. Now, they had wild scavenger dogs that ran in packs that were mean, vicious. 
And so that word dog was a very derogatory word. And that's about the worst thing they could call you as a dog. One of these wild scavenger vicious dogs that, you know, skinny and roaming around and attacking. But Jesus didn't use that Greek word when he said to the woman, it isn't right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. He used a diminutive form, and it could be translated, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppies. He didn't use that mean, derogatory dog, scavenger dog. So don't think too harshly of Jesus on this. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the little puppies under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, Jesus knew all things. After all, he's God. He knew the faith of this woman, and I think he was just seeking to draw out her faith to the full expression. I think he intended to heal the woman's daughter the whole while. You know, he didn't, I don't think he thought, well, I'll just heal her for that one, you know. Uh, I, I think that he was deliberately drawing out her expression of faith. And w whenever he would take one step back, she'd take two steps forward. And, and thus he was drawing her out to the full expression. And so now, Lord, the little puppies, they eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And he said unto her, for this saying, go your way, the devil has gone out of your daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter was lying upon the bed. Now again, departing from the area of Tyre and Sidon, he came to the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. Now Decapolis were the 10 uh, major cities in the upper Galilee region. Uh, they have, uh, Decapolis of course is, is Greek, 10 cities. And it was called the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so Jesus is going through still what would be the Galilee of the Gentile area in the cities of the Decapolis, the 10 cities. And they brought unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and he put his finger into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the healing miracles of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 6-7 through 7 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. 
You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, Again, how thankful we are for these insights that we have on the character and the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. His compassion, his concern for the hurting, his willingness to be touched, his willingness to spend himself and be spent in order to minister to the people. His reluctance to send them away, but his desire to have them around him because they were like sheep who didn't have a shepherd, didn't have any direction in life, were living purposeless, aimless lives. And he saw that lack of purpose And he had compassion. He felt sorry because there was no real direction or purpose. Oh, Lord, how thankful we are that you have given to us real purpose and real direction for life. May we tonight, Lord, get in touch with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall we stand? I pray that the Lord will give you a glorious week and that you'll find many opportunities to draw close to Jesus, to be strengthened by him, to touch him, and allow him just to touch your life with his love and to fill you with his spirit and to guide you in your path. May the Lord be with you. Watch over and keep you in Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The Word for Today is pleased to present a flash drive of audio Bible studies by Kay Smith titled, A Collection of Cherished Messages. Just listen to what others are saying. Kay Smith changed my life. Her teachings encouraged me to want more of Jesus. And through her counsel and mentoring, I fell in love with him in a deeper way. When I first heard Kay, I was driving in my car. I was so moved that it brought me to tears because I needed to repent. That moment impacted my life to be a better mom 
and who I am today. Renew your strength, please. I beg, I beseech, I entreat, and if there's any other word, I do that too. Get in His Word. Make it more than your necessary food every day. Kay Smith has a special place in her heart to teach and encourage women to live for Jesus. To order this flash drive with over 90 audio messages by Kay Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.